This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weissman. On today's program, we talk to Ukrainian expert Bohdan Kravchenko, who's just back from Kiev, to get his view of the state of Russia's war on Ukraine from the ground. We're 151 days or five months into the Kremlin's irrational, brutal, and reckless invasion, and the mission and goals have shifted. Russia no longer pretends it is denazifying Ukraine. It now argues in favor of erasing Ukrainian national identity and forcing Ukrainians to be Russians. Analysts in the West, particularly in Europe, with their economies hurt by reduced flows of Russian natural gas and rocketing energy prices wreaking havoc on their economies in the midst of a blistering heat wave, see Russia's scorched earth war conduct and will to persist despite heavy losses as a sort of stalemate, if not a Russian victory so far. So the pundits and analysts say Ukraine should cede territory to get a ceasefire because Russia has the initiative. The view from Ukraine, as our guest Bohdan Kravchenko reports, is that Russia is losing this war, has wasted thousands of lives, and is running out of troops and war material. Despite their huge costs and losses, Russia is getting more aggressive and brutal, as irrational as that may seem. Ukrainians in the occupied territories of the Donbass region have been forcibly deported to Russia or sent to filtration camps. The economic and climate consequences of the war are already apparent, but at least the immediate threat of a catastrophic global food crisis has been staved off by the agreement brokered on Friday to allow the export of millions of tons of grain that have been blockaded from Black Sea ports. We're going to get Bohdan Kravchenko's assessment and analysis of the current situation and prospects when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weisman. We're now five months into Russia's brutal war against Ukraine. That's 151 days. Russia has control of the Donbass region and is expanding its war and shifting its mission. Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov announced on Wednesday that this is no longer a war to denazify Ukraine. It's an imperial war of conquest. One that aims, apparently, and ultimately, to obliterate Ukraine as an independent state and incorporate it into greater Russia. Ukrainians in occupied territories have been forcibly deported to Russia or sent to filtration camps. The economic and climate consequences of the war are already apparent. The immediate threat, however, of a catastrophic global food crisis may yet be averted as Russia and Ukraine have signed a deal to allow the export of millions of tons of grain that have been blockaded from Black Sea ports. But in every other respect, Russia is getting more aggressive and more brutal, as irrational as that may seem, given their huge costs and losses. Bokhan Kravchenko just returned from Kiev, and we're going to get his assessment and analysis of the current situation and prospects. So welcome to the show, uh, Bokhtan. Let me just give a brief introduction, and then I'll let you fill it out even more. Bokhtan is the Dean of the Graduate School of Development and former Director General of the University of Central Asia. They have five different campuses 
in Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and Tajikistan, even Afghanistan. Uh, Bohdan was formerly professor and then director of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies in Alberta, but he left Canada for Ukraine. And there, I'm going to let him pick it up in a moment. But Bohdan, you literally just got back from Kiev, where you had a chance to view very closely what Ukrainian Ukrainians have been experiencing during the five plus months of Russian military assault. I'm going to ask you to describe that. But first, I want to describe both the uh, what you observed in Kiev and the flavor of the discussions that you had there. But first, I want us to begin with your own background, because I think that's going to be a very important part of the story. So welcome, and let's hear more about your background. Yeah, well, I, I used to be the uh, director of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Alberta and a professor of interdisciplinary studies. So I knew a fair amount about Ukraine. And I came uh, before independence, one year before independence. That was achieved in August 1991, ostensibly to write a book. I then met people who were involved with the Council of Advisors to Parliament of Ukraine. And the Presidium of Parliament of Ukraine was the functioning government at that time. And I got involved with doing policy studies for them, et cetera, et cetera. And I was, and this was quite an interesting uh, group. And um, I, I managed to participate in all of the critical moments of Ukraine's independence. And um, basically was asked that you can always write, write a book. This is now the time to do history. And so one of the things that was very obvious was that Ukraine needed a new public administration. Actually, Ukraine was a very incomplete state because it was a colony, a post office box. It didn't really have much of a ministry of finance, no ministry of defense, although there were 1.5 million troops on the ground, uh, no, no foreign uh, trade or, or anything like that. So we established very, very fast, the Institute of Public Policy and Administration uh, with a very rigorous program, eventually uh, a very rigorous program to train uh, the top layers of administration. And I did that for 15 years until the October Revolution. I thought, okay, October Revolution is fine. It's over. I'll come to Bishkek um, for a couple of years and come back. Well, those couple of years... I turned out I was the first employee of the University of Central Asia. So <laughs> wow. that, that was one hell of a one hell of a journey to to get to where we are. And it's been uh, a huge lesson as as well and a very very big privilege to work with this university that is part of the Aga Khan Development uh, Network. So uh, I'm now getting rid of uh, finally uh, get getting out of positions. I have been in touch with Ukraine all the time. My youngest daughter lives there. We have a family business, which is a very nice publishing house. And so at the first opportunity, and I was actually planning to go to Ukraine at the end of February, and the war started. I had tickets, and I was actually going to go to Mariupol because I'm working with an NGO there. Mariupol is actually one of the coolest towns in Ukraine. It, it, it is the least corrupt, uh, has done wonderful things. But of course, Mariupol no longer exists, and I couldn't get there. So this was my first opportunity to visit Ukraine. 
Mm. And uh, I had a lot of discussions with friends and with with, with people in government, uh, really uh, about a, a series of issues, and the most important of which, of course, is what do you do with uh, reconstruction? And especially, how do you do reconstruction that is not going to be the traditional way in which uh, this is done, uh, but is place-based, uh, place-based development, and uh, strengthens, uh, strengthens the very significant decentralization that occurred in Ukraine. Ukraine passed a law of local government that really gave local government a huge amount of power. And one of the reasons why Ukraine has succeeded in the war is precisely because of the strength of the base of society. So reconstruction has to strengthen that place-based development and not undermine it. But in order to strengthen it, people will have to be trained so they know how to write projects, they know something about quantity surveying, so they don't get hoodwinkled into things, they know how to apply for grants, they know how to monitor, they know how to do strategic planning. So that's the sort of stuff that we discussed. It's really but, interesting uh, because it sounds booked on like the kind of discussions you were having you know, is for the post-war scene in Ukraine. And you were in Kiev, and I and I know that, you know, the Russians pulled back and only seemed to bomb in the outskirts of Kiev. So I'd like to get, you know, before we talk about, like, the post-war scene, I want to dwell a little bit more so on the let, war. Let, let's talk about the middle situation. First yeah. of all, the Russians did not pull back. The Russians invaded, and they were on the outskirts of Kiev, and they were defeated. Thank and you. they failed absolutely miserably, and they spent all of the big effort. Remember, the whole point was to conquer Ukraine. Remember how the idiots in Moscow talked about it's going to take us two or three days and we'll just walk over it, right? So they got defeated, and that's it. That's why they're no longer uh, they're no longer in that whole part of Ukraine. They did, of course, colossal damage in some of the oblasts. But basically, what has happened over the last couple of months is reversal after reversal for the Russian troops. They have many colossal losses. Recently in the Moscow Times, there are 50, it was said that there are 50,000 people that are missing. Mm. In refrigerated lockers in Ukraine, there are tens of thousands of troops. The Russians do not want to take their dead home. Their losses are probably around 100,000. 100, so the Ukrainian army has managed remarkably to fight and, and, and push back the Russians, even though it is smaller and less poorly armed for now. It's, it's actually better armed now. And that's because the Ukrainian army is not fighting, it does not fight like a Soviet army. It's more, it's more like NATO army, and it is based on a bunch of small, mobile groups that have great tactical autonomy. Whereas in Russia, you have the boss in the Kremlin, and I'm not joking, there was this uh, article in The Guardian that uh, Putin actually plans battles at the brigade level. And he hasn't got a clue about the country's geography. 
And Ukrainians couldn't understand why in a place called Chornobayevka, the Russians keep coming there and they were smashed 18 times. I mean, they just think, are these guys idiots? Well, actually, uh, the, the fact is they have been told by Moscow to go there and all of that. So because of this highly mobile and highly motivated army, they were able to push back and uh, push back the Russians very, very fast. Uh, and now the, the war basically now has stabilized in the sense there is no Russian advance. Uh, you know, listen, there are fantasies that guys like Lavrov talk about. In a, there is no coherent reason that the Russians can give for why they started the war. What, fear of NATO? Well, look, they have Finland now with a thousand kilometer yeah. border. And you know what? They're so afraid of NATO that they pulled the troops out. Of, uh, out. They pulled the troops from the Finnish border, knowing perfectly well that nobody in NATO is ever going to invade Russia. So there is no coherent reason. Uh, denazification. I mean, that's hardly you know. What what does that mean? That means that anyone who is a Ukrainian is a Nazi. I mean, this is stupid. And we've already uh, said many times before that there are more Nazis in Russia than in Ukraine. But what, I want to I, I want to go back just to one thing before we do the denazify, because it's, you know, you and I spoke just before the war and then after the war began. And and almost everybody, most of the people who were analysts did not think that that Putin would actually invade. It was, in fact, the, the intelligence sources, the U.S. CIA, that said they're not only amassing on the border, but they'll do it. And they seem to be the only ones that knew it. But it it always seemed irrational because the costs are gigantic. And we've seen that these costs are, are gigantic. And now we see, as you just said, that they're doubling down on their losses and seem to be willing to accept any you know number of losses. You said a hundred thousand. Most of the places, most of the figures I've seen are like thirty, forty thousand. But there's no real, nobody really knows. But but what I was going to say is that they've thrown normal, let's say, cost calculation of humans and material to the wind in order to what to salvage national pride, aggrandizement, recreate. You know what what? And it seems we've also seen that. They're unable to, you know, recruit more troops. They're thinking of conscription. They have older men there. Troop morale is low. Uh, there's draconian repression at home of any anti-war se- sentiment. And what, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands have already left the country. So it just seems like, wow, this is a, losing. And yet they continue. Um, and as you said, they were defeated in Kiev and, and pulled back because of the fierce resistance. Um, were unable to conquer Kherson and Zaporizhia, uh, except by through this war of attrition. Then they switched their aims to just, you know, having the Donbass region uh, and, and doing the kind of scorched earth policy that you talked about in Mariupol and, and then Severodonetsk. So it's really like, you know, I, I wanted to ask, because we're talking about Russia losing the war at a giant cost, but extracting this horrific penalty of destroying everything they see. So there's that. And then on the other hand, while the West has been helping, um, what you see is the um, pundits now, because they're hurting in Europe, because of higher prices and less uh, gas being delivered, that they're talking about, well, you know, Ukraine's going to have to go to the negotiating table, table, though it should be a ceasefire and they should cede territory. So what do you think? 
Well, look, there are several elements over here. You cannot understand the war unless you understand that it is the work of an authoritarian regime and a dictator who is out of his mind. And really, he's the one who makes decisions. When the invasion was launched, for example, someone as close in his circle as the Minister of Foreign Affairs did not realize that that's going to happen. So for, for Putin, who, who said that we need, uh, who, who took on the mantle of Russian imperialism as maybe the last organizing idea of his regime, who was fed information by his uh, security services that Ukraine is ripe to fall, like, you know, it's just everyone is going to come in and support. He was completely misinformed, and that whole fifth department of the federal services has been dismantled. He launched the war stupid, unprepared. You do not conquer a country of 40 million with 150,000 troops. You can only understand this madness if you, uh, you understand that it is coming out of one guy, and that's Putin. It is very similar to Hitler, right? Until the end, he was planning. But now that they have invaded and killed a lot of people, they can't give a coherent reason as to why they're doing that. But they cannot withdraw because they have to admit that we invaded and killed for no reason. And therefore, we will have to remain in Ukraine and continue to kill for no reason. There's no coherent reason. And, um, and so what is obviously on the cards is, uh, are two things. Number one is Ukrainian military success. What Ukraine lacked and the West shamelessly failed to provide, but is now providing, in, uh, is now really ramped up, are the kind of uh, weapons that Ukraine needs, especially, especially howitzers that can strike at 70 uh, or 80 kilometers. And Ukraine has been demolishing the, um, the logistics of the Russian army. So now the Russians, for three months, just think about this, for three months they fought a war on the 30-kilometer front in Donbass, and they got nowhere. I mean, they picked off a couple of towns, but they're basically exactly where they were three months ago. After thousands of dead, the artillery shells were firing 15 hours a day. I mean, who, the, the Ukrainian troops that were there, they, they all deserve a Hero of Ukraine medal automatically for putting up with this stuff. They persevered, and there's a standoff. And in other words, the Russians have absolutely no capacity to do an offensive now. And the thing that is now on the cards is the liberation of Kherson. Kherson has their entire infrastructure has been their supply chains, their stocks of weapons and ammunition and fuel has been destroyed. And there's no way that they can get them back because of highly precision bombing that is now occurring with the new equipment that Ukraine is getting. And so the Russians have lost a huge amount of equipment. They're now using equipment from 62, 65, 56. 
And Ukraine is getting, army is getting stronger. It is well equipped. It's going to be the strongest army in NATO and equipped with contemporary weapons. And so there's no question that Ukraine is going to win the war. And now here, here, here come then, you know, the, the Western pundits, right? Yes. yes, this is where I want to go, because I wanted to ask just specifically, we had Macron warning, don't humiliate Russia. And then you had, you know, the initial sanctions clearly hurt the economy and they've had to make do in a lot of areas. But they didn't they haven't worked in terms of forcing Putin to end the war or to say that word surrender. So and then I, let me just finish this, that the counter sanctions from Putin, which was to reduce the natural gas supply to Europe. And then, of course, the increase in gas and oil prices, fueling inflation everywhere, have really called into question the commitment of the West. Now, I just heard you say that the West is doing more now and the weapons are being sent. But you, you began to say we're hearing a lot of the pundits saying, well, there's a stalemate or Russia's winning and through this war of attrition, they will finally win. So it's time for Zelensky to give up territory and to, and to negotiate. So how do you see that in terms of the commitment of, say, you know, Western Europe to the Ukrainian cause and to actually what's going on? I, I, look, let's separate two things over here. One is the supply of arms and the steady advance of the Ukrainian army. Russia is incapable of moving troops forward. They are in a defensive position. Ukraine is now, now has the equipment and is getting more to start offensive positions. And the first thing is going to be the liberation of Kherson that is going to put Ukraine right next to Crimea. So these pundits, I don't know who they are, but they should actually study what military people say. And there's, you know, in this period of Internet and, 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 and everything, there's just a huge amount of information over there. So that is a fact. The Ukrainian Air Force is going to get better. Um, Ukraine has got very professional and highly motivated troops. The Russians are reduced to trying to recruit now from people from prison. Look, and their only tactic now that they can do is to bomb cities and to literally lob bombs without particular accuracy. I, well, I the, the train drove by Vinnytsia, where mm. a couple of days ago, a bomb was dropped on this beautiful, peaceful central Ukrainian city in a valley. And the kids were playing and three little 20 people died, among them three beautiful children just out of nowhere. So you can imagine being in Los Angeles and suddenly a bomb comes and smashes your park. These are war criminals. And that's the only thing that they can do. Now, if they think that this demotivates the Ukrainian population, it makes everyone angry. Though mother... It, it provokes colossal anger in the population and greater motivation to slaughter the bastards as fast as you possibly can. So that's the war situation. Let me ask you one more question about that. I know you're, I just uh, stopped your thought. I hope you hold on to what you were going to say. But Ukraine is fighting 
I guess what we call a just war or a people's war against Russia, a defensive war against Russia. And I wondered, you know, like some people are throwing around, well, Russia's being imperialist. You said that it's Putin's war and you use the term he's like a Hitler. And the more that I look at what he's doing, and especially with in regards to complete disregard for life in Ukraine, and wanting to obliterate not just the language, but the country, that it seems it recalls Stalin so much more than Hitler to me. And I wondered what you thought of the sort of character of what Putin's doing. It's kind of a combination of the SARS and Stalin, but it doesn't, it, I, I can't see the coherence. No, look, no, well, there is, there is a coherence, and it moved from being an authoritarian regime especially when things began to decline after 19 uh, in 2012. Like, you know, Putin's deal with the Russian people was that the collapse of the USSR was a blow to our morale as a nation. I am restoring Russian glory. Russia is going to be powerful again. We are going to develop the economy because the oil price is right. And you, especially the elites, are going to do extremely well and all of that. And in return, I'm the boss, right? Well, the economy is not doing very well at all. Russia is, in terms of distribution of wealth, the most unequal country in the world. The, the countryside and the rural areas are in a terrible state. That's why when Russian troops come into Ukrainian villages, from the south of Russia, they are shocked to find that Ukrainian villages have toilets, you know, and there were scenes of them taking toilets, toilets back to Ukraine. And as there was, and then Putin had a choice. You either liberalize, you dismantle that uh, oligarchic structure that, you know, where every single guy who has any top position has a bloody Italian villa. And and a yacht. I mean, this is this is staggering. You know, uh, staggering amount of money was pilfered. And of course, what you have is a funny situation where the entire elite, their whole families, are based in the West. None of them are in Russia. So Putin had a choice. You either say, okay, I democratize. Uh, there is a huge amount of corruption. Let's have free elections. Let's uh, deal, uh, dismantle these monopolies and all of that, and let's go ahead, right? He didn't do that. So his invasion of Crimea was the last popular act that Putin did. But it was always his maniacal dream. And he almost thinks that this is a God-given mission because he's a follower of that idiot. Uh, What's his name? Dugan. Dugan. Dugan uh, yeah. and others who believe that it is Russia's, Russia's mission to conquer the world and especially to conquer Ukraine. I mean, and, you know, all of these magical practices that he does with this, with his, uh, you know, um, with, with the minister of defense in weird places. This is completely irrational, but that's the situation we have. And Russia has to change. And the I have lots of Russian friends who say, look, we are praying for Ukraine's victory. The more sanctions, the better, because the only way in which we can get Russia back to being a normal society is by the removal of Putin. So when Macron says, don't embarrass Putin, 
It's a scandalously stupid statement. And it's not supported in Russia because they want to get rid of him because he's making their life miserable for it. So, yeah, uh, and, and, here, and in the West, I mean, the sanctions are working. Yeah, the, the, the West is going to have to think about its reliance on gas. But, you know, the NATO secretary, he said, you know, is it such a sacrifice that maybe for a couple of hours a day in Italy, you can turn off your air conditioning, you know, as a, as a sacrifice for values, you know, values like freedom, freedom of speech, uh, and all of that, whereas Ukrainians are paying for their lives for that. And I think this is going to be a problem. This is going to be a tension. But I think the Ukrainian message, which is a universal message, uh, and Ukrainians are very much kind of pitted and uh, about the fact that theirs is a universal message where we are fighting against a monstrous regime that oppresses its own people and has wrecked havoc in the world. Look at what they did in Syria to the democratic opposition. They leveled this, the, the, the cradle of democracy, Aleppo, to the ground. This is what we're dealing with. And so they did it to on, Grozny guys. as well. They so, did it to Grozny and Eric. Come on, West, stand up for your values. And okay, turn your goddamn air conditioning off for an hour. Well, I'm really glad to hear you say this, uh, Bogdan. And I, and I assumed that you would, you know, to go against this notion that Russia is winning in some way. Because most of the people that I talk to who were there on the ground say what you've just said, that they're losing. And in fact, even Russians are fighting on the side of Ukrainians who yeah, live there and, Russian, and, Russian and who are appalled. Yeah. Right. So, so, but then I, I was very pleased in the beginning to hear you talking about the kind of talks you had there, which is very much the post-war talks. Yes. Ukraine has been like cities have been leveled. Can they be re- rebuilt? Where are they going to get the money? The Ukrainian economy has taken a giant hit with this war. So let's move to that sort of the way that you see the end game in a way, whether or not you think that it's possible that, you know, it's in some way Russia will be forced to stop. Maybe they won't call uncle, but they'll be forced every, to stop. Every war ends in negotiation. <laughs> you know. So the question is the negotiating position. It is not up to Monsieur Macron. And by the way, he regrets his his words very, very significantly. He got hammered for that. He said this is a misunderstanding. We have the tape of the the tape of the of his discussion with Putin was was released, and Macron was treated like an idiot. You know, Macron said, well, we should talk. He said, well, you know, I don't have time to talk. I have to, Putin says, I have to go to a hockey game. There's no more talk, right? So I think that everyone understands the military situation is going to continue. At some time, there is going to have to be negotiations. The question is, what is the negotiating position? And the negotiating position is not going to be decided by the Mr. Kissingers of the world and other other pundits, these kind of global uh, ge- geopolitical maniacs who forget that there are pe- actually people living in these places. It is going to be defined by the sacrifices that the Ukrainian people have made and what the Ukrainians want, and that is the liberation of the country and return to the territories before invasion. And it's like a fairly simple thing. Now, 
we can talk about uh, the return of Donbass. Don't forget the war started in 2014. Right. It's eight years. Uh, uh, then we, the only thing that would be up for negotiation, perhaps, is Crimea, whose status is to be determined, etc., etc. Crimea is not the home of Russia. It was the homeland of Crimean Tartars. Those were the indigenous people that were deported three times. You know, <laughs> is it the position of Ukrainian government, let's say, that what happens in Donbass and Crimea should be decided by the people there themselves in some form of referendum? No, no, that is the Russian position that <laughs> we will do a referendum while we control the territory. Yeah. These are areas that are part of Ukraine. There will be elections in these places, just like everywhere else just like everywhere else, right? And these fictitious Donetsk and Luhansk republics are a joke. By the way, they are rounding up people from those republics. It is a complete tragedy. Hundreds of them are being sent to the front line for for, to be slaughtered in the front line. And behind them stand the, the cannon fodder. And they don't want to go. They're hiding, they're running, they're surrendering, and this kind of stuff. No, U- Ukraine's territories have to be restored. Donbass has to be restored. Kherson has to be restored. And I think the only thing that could be for negotiation is Crimea. Well, let me ask you just th- this question about what's happening in Donbass, because, you know, uh, there's been surveys, people there are not... are. Even if they had been pro-Russian before, they're no longer pro-Russian, you know, and they have been fighting with Ukrainians. Now, the question that you just mentioned, they've been forcibly deported or sent to the front. We're hearing about filtration camps. I'm not sure what those are exactly. Maybe you could explain. And then the question that comes out of that is in a post-war scenario when people have been treated so brutally and so awfully, how can you imagine you know, repairing, because the border, you know, Ukraine will still be on the border of Russia. Well, look, the filtration camps, there are about 12,000 people in the filtration camps. And that means anybody that has a kind of, and has been politically active, part of an NGO, be it women's organization or whatever, they are taken away. And you're going to stay in prison, you're not allowed out. Now, they're not taken to the gas chamber, but it's, it's the same principle, you know. Look, we know that Donbass is in a ruin. The, the psychological damage that has been done to people is enormous. I met a lot of people from Donbass when I was in, a, in, in Poland. Uh, where they had run away, including, including my family. But... There's a remarkable resilience in people. And the big issue is going to be, you're not going to rebuild Donbass as it was, because it was, you know, outdated industry and terrible. These were horrible, horrible places. Uh, I know them very, very well. It's going to be a new development. It's going to be a new Donbass. Mariupol will have uh, will have a steel plant that is more green than it used to be. So don't forget that only part of Donbass has been occupied by the Russians, right? 
a good, I mean, there's a significant part that is occupied that is controlled by the Ukrainians. So this is going to cost a huge amount of money. But we, this is also, people are excited about the possibility of building a new economy, really, really interesting economy, which is knowledge intensive. And my God, Ukrainian Ukrainians are so good at this IT stuff. It, it's, it's just amazing what how it works. So I was going to ask you, uh, Bogdan, because, you know, to really kind of give our listeners some sense of the mood. Because you're, you're talking, you know, the people that you discussed with, are, it sounds kind of upbeat and that they're making plans to create a much better Ukraine out of the ruins of the yeah, war. I, I, they're not I, they're really not upbeat. They, I mean, they're, they're very stressed, right? But unlike Russians... Ukrainians have the clear light at the end of the tunnel. And the, um, the, the fact that Ukraine is a candidate member of the European Union is a very big deal because in preparation for that comes a lot of things. Changes in legislation, getting rid of corruption, all kinds of possibilities. The, a lot of Ukrainians, especially the women, that have had women that have had and children that have had to evacuate there is a scent there is an exhaustion about them but you know i just talked to my relatives they said we want to come back we had a nice little business going in that you know in our place we were happy we had a car of course you live better in germany but by the way now that i'm in germany i see there are many many ways in which i can improve my business and i'm anxious to come home that's very interesting. You know, if, so, you, if, if you ran a little business like my uh, my cousin's daughter did, uh, did, and suddenly you were mopping floors in Germany, you want to come back, you know. So, so people will. Look, the scars, the psychological scars are horrific. What people have seen, what they have lived through, human remains and all of that, it's going to be there for decades. The kids are very, very stressed. Actually, the kids are the most resilient. But I think now we have a very difficult winter ahead of us. Europe has a big issue. And by the way, I think that one of the things that one should not overlook is that Putin's power did not kind of suddenly appear. He has been corrupting the global financial and political elites for years. And we now just see how deep that corruption has been. Just think of Schroeder, mm-hmm. you know, the former chancellor. And there are huge, and, you know, things like Bellingcat are beginning to reveal all of these connections, how, you know, London used to be called Lenin, London Grant for all <laughs> yeah. of the great deals that they did for laundering money and all of this stuff. So there has been a huge collusion of Western elites, corrupt elites with Putin that allowed them for allowed them to uh, extract billions of dollars from the Russian economy, screwing the Russian population while everybody in the West got got wealthy. You know, all of the guys who did the contracts, the, the peoples who, who did real estate, the cushy relationships, the money that Putin gave to support the right, like Le Pen and others, right? 
all of that is going to come to an end. And hence, a little bit of agony from political elites. And by the way, King for Bellingcat reports, because that's going to show how many of these people were actually on the take. That's really interesting. Well, let me just ask you on a more sort of, I guess, theoretical question. Many people are debating this new form of, you know, Putin's grand, grandiose Eurasian plan, the imperial, you know, reconquering, you know, the old empire. Do you see it as, a, as imperialist or do you see it just trying to save the kleptocracy and his own, you know, money and power? No, no. It, in, in, look, one of the things that Putin has done for the Russians to switch from a Soviet identity to give him a Russian identity and Russian pride. And so you see idiots wearing T-shirts in Istanbul. Uh, I'm from Russia. You don't have to like me. You fear me, right? Wow. And and he gave he gave Russians. You know, it was the collapse of the Soviet Union was a huge thing, the economic collapse. Russia was a basket case in the world, a huge superpower that was now garbage. He gave people that sense of pride. He actually believes in that imperial mission because he's inspired by all of these guys he's read. He's convinced that this is the case, right? And that Ukraine is a fiction, Ukrainians are kind of, should not be there, it's part of Russia, etc. All of that nonsense is something that he actually believes. Do you still think that he would, you know, if his losses were great enough, that he would use the nuclear op- option? No, of course he's not going to use the nuclear option. I mean, this you have to be, I mean, first of all, before, you know, as somebody pointed out, as they go to the toilet in Russia, before they press the nuclear option, Western satellites already know what they're doing, and there would be preemptive strikes. This is this is simply desperate and stupid, and they're propagandists. Uh, I don't know if you ever have watched that show, but this these idiots of Margarita Semenyan and others, others say, mm-hmm. oh, we can we can level London. The, England will disappear under our nuclear weapons. Literally, this, there's a kind of hallucination and kind of insanity about this stuff. And it's an insult to every single normal Russian. So uh, I think Russia has to get back to finding itself. It started that in the 1990s. You know, there was, you know, until recently, actually, Russia was part of the friendship group of NATO. It just got kicked off this year. Yeah. There was even talk about some associate agreement with the European Union and all. It has to come back to being a normal state. It is a state that produces nothing. They produce nothing. They just have oil and gas. Right. And so, okay, so now let's switch to Ukraine, because uh, we've seen in Ukraine a tremendous, you know, pride and fierce resistance Zelensky has emerged, you know, as as a great leader. Um, I've seen recently some criticism of this labor code that's being passed or uh, and other sorts of things. But I wonder now in your discussions in Ukraine, what kind of sentiment did you see in terms of Ukraine currently and what they hope it will be? Look, there is a country at war. And the war is led by the army. And we are very lucky to have an outstanding general. And it is led by by the president's administration, and he has been a fantastic leader. 
during this war effort. He has been, Ukraine is very, very fortunate that this guy who articulates things so clearly, he has communicates on a daily basis with the Ukrainian people uh, through a show. He visits the guys at the front. This guy has chutzpah like nobody else does. And he's great. That does not mean that beneath all of that, in the apparatuses of the state, from the Ministry of Education and all of that, that any of that has changed. That's still the same. And everybody knows that it's still the same, and everybody is not particularly happy with it. But, and everybody says that that is going to have to be dramatically changed because uh, when the war ends, we did not fight for the war in order to have these slimy buggers back into their positions doing the corruption schemes that they did before. And just wait until the troops come home. <laughs> they have a political agenda. They're not going to tolerate this stuff. So I think that with also, also with the membership of the European Union and all of that, there is going to be a very, very significant change and a reform agenda. But at this stage, people are not, people don't want to do too much at that level. Ukraine is supremely well and strongly organized at the community, at the local level, right? There are hardly anybody I, I have met has any praise for many people at the ministerial level, with a couple of exceptions. So there's a very big reform agenda. I wouldn't get too excited about that labor code. Ukraine's economy has collapsed by 45%, uh, right? And you had a highly restrictive labor, labor code. When it says that you can now pay somebody, somebody can now work 70 hours uh, a week, it's actually people want to work longer than, a, because we, we, you know, we're in an emergency situation. There's no money. I am prepared to work you know, 50, 60, 70 hours a week because I have a job and I need it and let me go. It's not, you know, this is not, the, the only thing that has survived are small enterprises that are trying to piece together an economy and they're doing, they're doing reasonably well. This is not the time to start collecting social payments and this kind of stuff because the most important thing is for people to find jobs and for the economy to get going. I think the problem for everyone in Ukraine is to find a job. It's not that I only want to work eight hours a day at the job and no more. Just, just let me get on with it, right? As the war begins to, uh, as that period comes closer, there, there obviously uh, all everything that democratic society fought for, all of the changes that have to be done, everything that's still on the agenda. No one has forgotten that. There was an no article one. in uh, the Financial Times today, I believe, uh, that talked about how there was perhaps up to six million people who left Ukraine. And many of them were, have not been able to get jobs elsewhere. And those who have done it perhaps are, are in the low wage economy in the countries they went to, but earning more than they would have or will if they go back to Ukraine. And so there was some question in this article, uh, article about whether they will return. I, you know, of course, I can't ask you to look into a crystal ball, but what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, my, my thought is, uh, 
please do these calculations. Uh, be careful when you're doing them because you're double counting them. And please don't hypothesize because you don't know. Look, there are one million Poles living in UK. One million. Before the war, there were one million Ukrainians living in Poland, which borders on Ukraine, which got with guys coming, you know, uh, spending their weekends in Ukraine and going back to work. It is so remarkably close. I don't know uh, how many people have, I mean, UN counts them, but, you know, I know that, for example, if I'm if I go to Poland and I get registered, and then I go on to Germany and get registered, I'm counted twice. So that doesn't matter. Look, let Ukrainians decide about whether they want to come back or not. Okay, and they will. Whoever wants to come back will come back, and it depends because don't forget that a seventy percent of Ukraine still functions. <laughs> you know, there's still an economy. I mean, Kiev is is half empty. People want to come back. They're told not to come back because there are air there are air warnings three times at night because of the the possibility of bombing. The men have remained behind. The mm-hmm. refugees that are out there are women and kids. You don't think they want to come back? Now they're they're going to come back. If you're from Irpin, they're going to come back to find out all their homes are smashed. So they have to be rebuilt. In the discussion. Final question, really, but in the discussions you had with people, was there a sense, you know, that this this war will end soon or that, you know, as you said, the winter is going to be a challenge? Do you see this going on for a very long time? Everyone is discussing. Everyone wants to know when the war is going to end. I I don't, you know, it's now a situation of really Russia's incapacity to do any offensive, and it's running out of people, and it's running out of armaments. They now are using missiles from the Caspian Sea to bomb a place like Vinitsa. I mean, that's a $20 million million missile that kills 12, 20 people and three kids. I mean, you know, I mean, the cost-benefit of that is, is supremely stupid when you think about it, apart from the essential horrific tragedy of it. So I don't know. Uh, I think things are going to be very different in three or four months. The the key thing to watch is actually the Ukrainian troops uh, march on Kherson. That is going to be the the big game changer. um, Well, Thank you so much, Bogdan. This has been really comprehensive and, of course, difficult, too, because I'm asking you to predict things that no one can really predict. But you've given us a good sense of, I guess, the morale in Ukraine and also the costs of this war. And on the other hand, that, you know, bolstering this complete irrational Russian behavior in this war. And I think, you know, perhaps the final thing to think about is just how long Putin can survive Given the yeah, I, I, I would uh, I, I would uh, put things very clearly, and that is the Putin regime. Right. Because it's not Russia that is fighting us. It's the Putin's regime. Of course, there is collusion in Russian society for not having toppled uh, Putin. How come we can topple our dictators and you can't yours? This is one of the things that Ukrainians tell Russians. 
But let's be very clear that this is Putin and a small group of oligarchs that are doing this. This is not a particularly popular thing with Russian society. Okay, thank you so much, Bohdan Kravchenko. He's the Dean of the Graduate School of Development and former Director uh, General of the University of Central Asia. And you heard the story of how that was formed in Kyrgyzstan. And he just got back from Kiev, where, in fact, Bohdan lived for many years and was part of the uh, early governments and helping to set up administration, did I get that right, and public education as well in uh, in Ukraine. I imagine that you'll go back more and more in, in the time to come. I should also say that. Inshallah. Inshallah, right. And that Bortan and I have known each other perhaps, I guess, more than 50 years. We both were at the uh, Institute of Soviet and East European Studies in Glasgow. And Bortan was one of the founders of the journal Critique. I joined a year later and have been uh, working together ever since. And I want to thank you so much, Bortan. I wish you the best. We're certainly going to check back in with you. Take care, everyone. Thank Thank you. you. Okay. We close the show today with a song of war and hope from the voice of Ukrainian pop star Susanna Yamaladinova singing her hit song, 1944, which won the Eurovision Song Contest in 2016. Don't swallow my soul Our souls Oh, my God.